All right. Thank you guys for being willing to chat a little bit. You can kind of tell we're down a little bit today. So I think it's uh, fall break for Barry, so a lot of the college students are back home. Uh, but one of the college students is not back home. Actually, lots of the college students are not back home today. In fact, one of them is going to be sharing uh, sort of her story of following Jesus with us this morning. And so Sarah Pierce, if I can go ahead and ask you to make your way up. And by the way, just so you know, Sarah is not my daughter. My daughter's up here. She is not a cousin of mine. She's not my wife. This is, uh, this is just somebody, it's a good friend of ours um, from a, a Barry student who's coming in to uh, sort of share her story today of following Jesus. So Sarah, I'm going to turn it over to you. Okay. Can y'all hear me? Okay. So I'm Sarah. I'm a sophomore at Barry, and I guess I'm just going to tell you guys about what God has most recently showed me. Um, so... Those of you who don't know me, I, um, I struggle a lot with anxiety, and it was not really something that I had to deal with a lot last year, because I think going to college for the first time like gave me a lot of control in my life, and I was able to like take charge and really feel secure in that. And then this year, I think a lot of things are just out of my control, and I'm just kind of having to deal with that, and so um, my anxiety has been a lot more present with me this year, and so... Not this past week, but the week before, I had like a bajillion different tests and quizzes and projects, and it was just a lot going on. And I'm the kind of person who like really wants to do well in school and like really wants to be perfect at everything. And so like I put a lot of pressure on myself to like be the perfect student, like study, get everything right, get everything good. And so that whole week, I like didn't really get a lot of rest. I was really just like going, going, going. And then I was really excited for that weekend because it was Mountain Day. And I was hoping to get a lot of rest in that and get some good time with my friends because, like, I really, really love my friends and I usually find a lot of rest in them. But there was just a lot of drama and stuff went down. And so I didn't get any rest in that. And then I thought, <laughs> I thought, I'll go home because if I can go home, I can just find some rest there. And I went home and I realized that at home, there's all kinds of stuff that I have to deal with that, like, I don't have to deal with at college because, like, you know, everybody, you know, makes their own life for themselves at college, and so when they go home, it's like, wait, what's going on here? So I went home, and I didn't get to rest there either, and so I came back to school Monday morning so exhausted, and so I just felt so much that I, like, couldn't handle it all, and I, I'm a swimmer at Barry, and so I had to go to practice, I had to go, you know, do all these things, and I had to just fly right back into it. And I just had so many panic attacks. It was awful. And I just was thinking, like, I have to be this perfect athlete. I have to be this perfect friend. I have to be this perfect student. I can't do all of it. Oh, my gosh. I was never meant to do all of this. Like, how am I supposed to handle all of this? And my coach got kind of freaked out because <laughs> I was just kind of losing it at every practice, and he was just getting really concerned with me. And my mom told me that I should, like, write him out an email because I'm way better at writing and expressing things than I am at talking and expressing things because he was just really concerned and he's never, you know, experienced my anxiety before. So he kind of thought that I was falling apart on him and that I was just never going to get back to my old self. And so I was writing him this email and explaining it and explaining, like, it comes and goes, like, I'm going to be fine. And I, God just kind of stopped me and he very clearly was like, you're trying to be a perfect athlete, a perfect friend, a perfect student, a perfect daughter. You're trying to be all of these things, but I never meant for you to be perfect. He 
just kind of stopped me and was like, you're not perfect, but you are someone who loves school, who loves swimming, who loves your friends, who loves your family. And that's what I want you to have be the driving force of your life. Like, it's, I'm not supposed to be driven by this standard for perfection that I usually try and live by, but it's supposed to be this love that I have for life and that God has given me for all of these things. So, yeah, this is a totally new perspective. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. So one of the things that Sarah and I were sort of texting back and forth about this week is how, you know, following Jesus, a big part of that means being given this new perspective. And, and part of the problem is when we're not following Jesus or before we follow Jesus, or sometimes when we are following Jesus, but we get really distracted and, and, uh, and we kind of get off track, a lot of times what happens is um, that our perspective is clouded, right? We, we look at God and instead of seeing him as a loving heavenly father who wants us to thrive and to flourish and who delights in us and who wants us to rest, it's why he created the Sabbath, it's why he gave us his son, um, all we think about him is this taskmaster, right? This judgmental taskmaster with a furrowed brow. And so part of following Jesus means we're given this new perspective about who God is and who he wants us to be as his children. And so, Sarah, I appreciate you being willing to sort of just share about this new perspective that uh, God has been working in you over the last um, you know, week and a half or so. So thank you for sharing that. We're going to jump in really quickly to Acts chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to talk about how when God invites us to follow him, we are given this new perspective. And we're going to look at it in particular in Acts chapter 9, and so you can look up on the screen and see this very quickly. But in Acts chapter 9, we see this story of, of, uh, of Jesus inviting Saul slash Paul to follow him. And in doing so, what you'll see in this very first section here, we're just going to read part of his sort of conversion story. Um, is we're going to see that he is given a new perspective. In fact, he's given blindness, right? That's a little bit shocking. It's a shocking interruption. But that's not the only shocking thing about Jesus' interaction with Paul. The other shocking thing about Jesus' interaction with Paul is that he basically says, why are you living as my enemy? He accuses him of, doing, of having a, an adversarial relationship. So let's read through Acts chapter 9, uh, where Paul begins to follow Jesus. So read along with me, if you will. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, as we talked last week and we looked at Jesus beginning to call the disciples to follow him, and we're looking this week and we're seeing Jesus calling Paul to follow him, you can probably already tell there's so many different things we could talk about in this passage. And, uh, and I'm going to focus on two. And, uh, and so if you will, um, just sort of jump into looking at these two pieces of Jesus inviting Paul to follow him. First of all, what we see is that for Paul, following Jesus began with an interruption. 
And so for Paul, following Jesus began with an interruption. Verse 3, we'll look at a couple of the verses from here. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Some of you guys may not know this, but uh, his name was Saul before he became a Christian, but then his name was changed to Paul after he began following Jesus. And so that's some of the reason for the name changes in here. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now let me just call time out here really quickly and just tell you that Saul was ambitious, right? Saul was busy. He had a lot going on. He had devoted his entire life to becoming one of the religious and political elite in Israel. I don't know exactly what his motivations were, but he was climbing the rungs of the ladder rapidly. He was ambitious. Part of climbing that ladder for Saul slash Paul was doing the dirty work of the high priest, which in this case meant pursuing, capturing, and dragging Jewish Christians back to Jerusalem where they would be put on trial. He was busy. And at this point in the story, Saul is on the road to Damascus. It's probably about 10 days' journey from Jerusalem. It's uh, sort of in the northwest, and he is in pursuit of these followers of Jesus. He's busy. He's 100% focused on his agenda. He even thinks he's serving God. And into all of his busyness, God breaks in. He interrupts Saul's agenda. This is what happens when God invites us to follow him as well, isn't it? Isn't this how God works with us? Doesn't he interrupt us? Right? Doesn't he sort of take things out of our agenda? Even Sarah was talking about that a minute ago. I had agenda A, I had agenda B, and God had a different agenda. It was an interruption. There's a lady named Kirsten Powers. She's a contributor to US, uh, USA Today. Uh, she writes for the Daily Beast and reports for the Daily Beast. Uh, she is a Democratic commentator for Fox News and for CNN. I think we have a picture up here in a second. Well, um, she, I read, recently read a story um, where she told of her conversion, essentially, of her beginning to follow Jesus. And in the story, what she says is, I had been dating this man, and uh, we had started dating, and he had, after a month or so, begun to uh, investigate Christianity. And she said, what was weird about that is about a month before I met him and started dating him, somebody had asked me, hey, what's like a deal breaker for you in you know, a dating relationship. And she said, without a moment's thought, I said, man, anybody who's religious, like that's just a deal breaker for me. And so when, she, you know, when all of a sudden her bo- boyfriend said, hey, uh, I'm kind of investigating Jesus, she was thrown for a bit of a loop, needless to say. And I'm gonna jump into her own sort of story of this conversion, how it all happened. She says this. So you know, she, here she is, this you know, super busy journalist traveling the world, reporting on all these stories, maintaining this dating relationship with this guy who's in New York. And she begins by saying this, one night in 2006, on a trip to Taiwan, I woke up in what felt like a strange cross between a dream and reality. Jesus came to me and said, here I am. Here I am. It felt so real. I didn't know what to make of it. I called my boyfriend But before I had time to tell him about it, he told me that he had been praying the night before and he felt like we were supposed to break up. So we did. Honestly, while I was upset, I was much more traumatized by Jesus visiting me. In other words, I was 
not even all that concerned about the fact that my boyfriend just broke up with me. I was much more concerned about this dream I had had where Jesus had appeared to me. She says this, I tried to write off the experience as misfiring synapses that would fit with my worldview, but I couldn't shake it. When I returned to New York a few days later, I was lost. I suddenly felt God everywhere, and it was terrifying. More important, it was unwelcome, right? Some of you have experienced the unwelcomeness of the pursuit of God. It was like an invasion. I started to fear that I was going crazy. I didn't know what to do. So I spoke with writer Eric Metaxas, whom I had met through my boyfriend and who had talked with me quite a bit about God. You need to be in a Bible study, he said. And Kathy Keller's Bible study is the one you need to be in. I didn't like the sound of that, but I was desperate. My whole world was imploding, right? There's this massive interruption in my agenda, my busyness, my world, my motivation. My world was imploding. How was I going to tell my family or friends about what had happened? Nobody would understand. I didn't understand. She also goes on to say, it says a lot about my, the family in which I grew up, that one of my most pressing concerns was that Christians would try to turn me into a Republican. Like I was more worried about that than anything. So she says this, she says, I remember walking into the Bible study. I had a knot in my stomach and in my mind, only weirdos and zealots went to Bible studies. I don't remember what was said that day. All I know is that when I left, everything had changed. I'll never forget standing outside that apartment on the Upper East Side and saying to myself, it's true. It's completely true. The world looked entirely different. It's this new perspective because of this interruption It looked different, like a veil had been lifted off of it, and I had not an iota of doubt. I was filled with indescribable joy. She goes on to say this, the horror of the prospect of being a devout Christian crept back in almost immediately. I spent the next few months doing my best to wrestle away from God. Sounds a lot like C.S. Lewis. It was pointless. Everywhere I turned, there he was. Slowly there was less fear and more joy. The hound of heaven had pursued me and caught me whether I liked it or not, right? Sometimes following Jesus begins with this interruption, right? She wasn't looking for God. In fact, she was not looking for God. She was trying to avoid him at all costs, and yet he interrupted her story and her life, and Jesus invited her to follow him. Our journey of following Jesus always begins with an interruption. It always begins with an interruption. God breaks into our lives, our goals, our priorities, and he invites us to follow him. Many of you in this room can identify you were on your way towards a particular career, or you were totally focused on a boyfriend or a girlfriend or your studies or a sport when God rudely and abruptly interrupted in your life has never been the same since. Some of you have not experienced this interruption yet, right? Some of you in this room are going, nope, no interruptions here. But maybe today is the beginning of that interruption. Maybe, maybe today is that day. Maybe the interruption is a friend who's asking you to consider God. Maybe they're doing it really verbally, Maybe they're modeling it for you. Maybe you know they're praying for you. Maybe you know it's what they would like for you. Maybe that's the interruption. Maybe the interruption will come through a podcast or a song, or maybe like it did with Kirsten Powers, maybe it'll come through a dream where Jesus says, here I am. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you to listen. 
because following Jesus begins with an interruption. It was true for Paul. It was true for C.S. Lewis. It's true for Kirsten Powers. Following Jesus not only begins with an interruption, however, it also begins, especially in this story of, of Saul slash Paul, with an accusation, a really shocking accusation. Let's look at verses one through four. It says this, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they called Christianity back then, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? One of the things that I'm learning as I get older is that forgiveness is far, far more complicated than just saying I'm sorry and then going, hey, let's move on, right? Forgiveness is much more complicated than that. The process of forgiveness often begins when one person points out the reality of having been wounded or wronged or sinned against by the other. And then that other person has several choices, right? You can move into denial. No, I didn't do that. You can blame the other person. Well, the reason I hurt you, the reason I treated you that way is because you did this. Or you can justify, right? You can say, well, here's why I made that decision to do what I did. You can respond in all of these ways to this accusation. Or when someone says, you've wounded me, you've hurt me, you've sinned against me, you can be humble enough to see the reality and the weight of your fault and then to acknowledge it and even even pursue it further. And to ask questions, to be curious about the depth of that wounding and how much you've actually hurt that person. That's the beginning of forgiveness, right? And we can see the beginning of that process here as Jesus confronts Saul, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? He, Jesus points out Saul's sinfulness. Jesus is confronting Saul and saying, if you're messing with my children, then you're messing with me. Why are you living as my enemy? Why are you acting as though we are enemies? And Paul, frankly, would have been shocked at this accusation that he was actively living as an enemy of God. But he shouldn't be shocked because actually living as an enemy of God is apart from God, our default position. I'm going to read a story um, about a, written by a lady named Carolyn Ahrens. She's a, a musician. And uh, she wrote an article called Viewing a Friend and Even God as an Enemy. And we're going to see sort of through looking at her story how easy it is for us to assume the worst about other people when we should assume the best. So she's a songwriter, and, uh, and she writes this. When I found a brand new laptop for half price on eBay, I told my friend and musical colleague Spencer about my bargain of a find. He was worried. Usually when something's too good to be true, I know, I know, I replied impatiently, but the seller has a 100% approval rating. Be careful, warned Spencer. Of course, I assured him, annoyed. I wasn't born yesterday. I sent the seller $1,300 and discovered in very short, sickening order that I'd fallen prey to a classic scam. A fraudster had hacked somebody else's eBay identity in order to relieve easy marks like me of my money. I felt like a fool. I just didn't want to tell Spencer. The next time I saw his number on my caller ID, I didn't answer. I could just imagine his, I told you so. Soon, I was avoiding Spencer completely, and I started to resent him. Why did he have to be so judgmental? Why couldn't he just be on my side? Why was I ever friends with that jerk? 
right? You can see her beginning to create this narrative of instead of him being a friend who cares about her, that he's an enemy, right? Eventually, we had to fly together to perform at a concert. Whatever happened with that computer thing, he asked an hour into the flight. Cornered, I finally confessed my foolishness, dreading the inevitable response. But as soon as I told Spencer about my mistake, a strange thing happened. The enemy I had turned him into evaporated. Spencer turned into Spencer again, my teasing but deeply empathetic buddy. As embarrassed as I was by my eBay error, I felt even dumber about the way that I had allowed my shame to distort my perception of a best friend. If my hand had not been forced, I would have remained estranged from him indefinitely. She goes on to write, I've always considered myself perceptive, but the longer I live, the more I discover my susceptibility to misinterpretation. This is true of the way I view my friends, truer of the way I see my enemies, and perhaps truest of the way that I perceive God. Does that make sense? Part of what is happening here in this passage where Jesus appears um, to, to Saul on the road to Damascus, part of what's happening in this story with Carol and Aaron's is part of what happens with us as well. You may not know it, but your default position apart from God's work in your life is actually to view him as an enemy, right? To view God as an enemy, to view Jesus as an enemy. If you do not believe me, then let me just read some scripture for you. You can argue with the Bible. Colossians 1 says this, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and, listen to this phrase, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviors. You hear that? Once you were enemies in your mind with God, you viewed God as an enemy. You didn't trust him. You didn't believe that he was good. You didn't believe that he loved you. You didn't believe that he had your best interest in mind. In fact, Satan's temptation to you was to believe exactly the opposite, that God doesn't love you, that he doesn't want what's best for you, that he is holding out on you, that he, he cannot be trusted. He is your enemy. That's our default position. And Satan honestly still plucks that cord, uh, not only for unbelievers, but believers as well. And not all of us are actively persecuting Christians or living in overt opposition to God, but most of us, like Carolyn Arends, live avoiding and resenting God, believing him to be a judgmental and vindictive God, or at least like he can't be fully trusted to act in our best interest. We're treating him like an enemy, but he's not an enemy. God is not your enemy. Right? That was the whole message last week with the story of C.S. Lewis is God was pursuing him precisely when he didn't want to be pursued by God. The story of Kirsten Powers this morning is a story of God pursuing her precisely when she didn't want to be pursued by God. The story that we read of Paul, Saul here is that God is pursuing him precisely when he doesn't want to be pursued by Jesus. Right? Not only is God not your enemy, he has done whatever it takes to bring you back to himself, right? Like if you've been living like God as your enemy, he could justifiably sort of write you off. He could justifiably punish you, but that's not what he does. He seeks to draw you back to himself. Listen to Romans chapter eight, five. Romans chapter five says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still in opposition to God, 
Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified or made right with him by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Do you see what Saul slash Paul is writing there? What he's saying there is he's saying, while we were still God's enemies, he died for us. While we were still his enemies, he pursued us. When we were still his enemies, he interrupted our lives in order to draw us to himself, right? That's what, that's what he's saying. And he's saying not only that, but he said that God sent his only son to die for you while you were still in total and complete opposition to him, right? That's good, good news to remember that. That's, that's grace. It's mercy. It's God's unmerited favor. It's him not treating us as we deserve, right? He could have treated us like enemies, but instead he treats us like beloved children. This morning, if you look around the room, there are tables with uh, bread and wine or bread and grape juice. And what these tables represent is something that we call the Lord's Supper. Some people call it the Eucharist. Some people call it communion. But fundamentally, what is pictured, what is modeled in this bread and wine is that Jesus lived and died and rose again in order for you to be reconciled to God. If that makes sense. In other words, part of the other way, part of what this means as well is that God is saying in this meal, if you trust in my son Jesus for your savior, then, then we're not enemies, right? I, I have no, no wrath for you. I'm not angry with you. I look at you now and I see you as perfect. You're completely forgiven. What's required then of you? What's required of you, what's required of me is to believe, to believe that God is good, to believe that he loves us, to believe that the sacrifice of his son was more than enough to reconcile you to him. It's not about your performance. It's about Christ's performance on your behalf. And your only response this morning is to turn to God and to say, I believe you, right? I trust that your son Jesus did it all. I trust that because of him, I can come before you and be seen as righteous, not just for today, but righteous forever. I'm gonna read what we call the words of institution. And then after I read the words of institution, I'm gonna pray And I would simply ask that you just take time and to sit in your seats today and to really wrestle with God and uh, and to pray to him and ask him to allow you to believe that the sacrifice of his son Jesus was enough um, to declare you righteous, to take away his wrath so that God can look at you and see you as perfect. The words of institution are this, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that what is becoming really clear is that you are pursuing us. Um, Father, that you entered into the Garden of Eden um, looking, longing for Adam and Eve to be restored in relationship to them, Father, and you do it still today. You did it through the person in your work of your son Jesus who told everybody, I came to seek and to save the lost. 
Father, I thank you that you, um, that you're, that you love us enough to interrupt us. I thank you that you love us enough um, to step right in the middle of our agendas um, and our busyness and our ambition in order that you might call us to follow your son, Jesus. Father, I thank you that you even love us enough to reveal to us what our, what our brokenness is, Father, that we somehow by Satan have been tricked to see you as an enemy, to see you as someone who can't be trusted, as someone who isn't good, And Father, I pray against those temptations of Satan today that you would direct our attention at these tables of bread and wine as a reminder that you loved us enough to send your only son to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death, and to rise again, conquering both sin and death so that we might be brought back into a relationship with you because you longed for us because you desired to know us and to walk with us and to set us free. And so, Father, let us believe that you are good. Let us believe that your son Jesus is all in all, that he has done everything that is required to make us righteous, Father. And then, please, Father, continue to invite us to follow your son. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen.